This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The scripture reading for this morning is John 13, verse 31 through 14, 1. John 13, starting in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself, him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, You will lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Good morning. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. They didn't know what that meant yet, did they? Let's pray. Spirit of God, I ask that you would stir and stoke and change our hearts. That we would love one another, Jesus, as you have loved us. Lay down your life for us. Been whipped and beaten and ripped and torn for us. Would you be glorified in your death and resurrection today through our uh, wonder and amazement and submission and kind of a obedient posture underneath the awesome um, power and glory of who you are, of what you say, of what you did. Spirit of God, would you convict the proud? Would you comfort the weary? Would you strengthen the weak through the word of God in the power of Christ? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We are starting a brand new series today. We ended a series right before Easter or right before Palm Sunday on Isaiah. We've been in Isaiah for over a year and we're starting a new series today called Don't Let Your Hearts Be Troubled, right? The whole series is named after this one sentence kind of instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples right here in John chapter 14, verse one. 
This is the beginning of what's called the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse where Jesus spends time giving final instructions to his disciples, giving them a heads up on what's going on before he heads towards the cross. And he says, he says right here in our text, don't let your hearts be troubled because a troubled heart is a universal human experience. Right? Do we want to get like a raise of hands? A troubled heart is a universal human experience. So I want to open this morning by saying, what troubles your heart? We don't have to ask whether, but just what? What is it? What is it? What's the thing? What's your greatest fear right now? Maybe rehearse it in your own heart. What terrifies you? What puts your heart in a state of distress and unrest and anxiety? Is it fear that your kids are going to get hurt? Is it fear of not getting a good job? Is it not finding somebody to marry? Is it going bankrupt? Is it being found out? Could it be a failure of some sort? Is it the health of your family or your own health? Is it this church? Is it a kind of anxious focus on a disorder or a dysfunction that you live with or your wife lives with or your kids live with that draws away your focus from God, from the word, from Jesus? What's the thing that automatically draws you away and draws the focus of your emotion and puts all of your attention onto your circumstances and gives you a troubled heart? Out of all the different motivations of our hearts, the fear of trouble and pain has this massive influence on our behavior. And when I say that, I mean our behavior on the outside, what we do, and the movements inside our hearts. We're constantly motivated by anxiety and worry and being unsettled. We experience real or even imagined threats of this life and we spring into action in order to make those feelings just go away. And that action might be external. It might be trying to make other people around us change or trying to change our circumstances. And it might be internal. It might be kinds of emotional coping mechanisms that we've developed. It might be some kind of justification or rationalization that we give ourselves, which is just self-deception. Right off the bat, we need to come to terms with two assumptions that Jesus makes here in this text. He assumes that you're gonna face things that will test you and try to convince your heart that it should be troubled. He assumes that you'll face things difficult. And he assumes that you have a part to play. He assumes you have a role, a participation in whether or not or how that happens. He assumes your role isn't passive. I want us to ask how we can learn things from this command of Jesus, especially, especially because of what these guys are about to walk through. I want us to ask certain questions today because these men are about to walk through things that would blow our minds, that would stress us out, that would um, maybe make us pass out from fear of pain and misery and heartache. So I'm going to look at three things from this text, three kind of movements from this text. I'm going to talk about the fact that there's no escape in this life from trouble. There's no escape. There's no escape in this life from trouble. 
I'm going to talk about Jesus's command and how it reveals that we have a part to play. We get to participate. And then I'm going to talk about how what we believe is a weapon, a tool, an offensive kind of reality against the trouble that we face in our lives. So first, there's no escape from trouble in this life. These men specifically are about to walk through unbelievable circumstances, the kind of circumstances that will tempt them and entice their hearts to be troubled. If you aren't familiar with the story, we have the disciples of Jesus about to watch him get stabbed in the back, right, by one of his closest friends. They're about to watch themselves crumple up like cowards and run away. These men are going to watch Jesus be framed in a fixed court case. They're going to fail him. They're going to betray him. They're going to deny that they even know him. And all of that before he gets whipped and beaten and scourged and stabbed and abused and finally nailed onto a Roman cross to watch him be crucified. But don't let your hearts be troubled. Unbelievable. You and I will not escape will not escape our own version of what Jesus faces here and what his disciples face here in this text. It's interesting to note that Jesus waits to begin this section of John, known as the Upper Room Discourse or the Farewell Discourse, and so after Judas has already separated from the group. Judas has slithered away to get his money and betray Jesus and betray his closest, dearest friends. These guys weren't just acquaintances. They weren't just coworkers. They weren't even like fellow church member kind of friends. These guys were close. They were in Judas's closest circle. They were best friends. They were life on life, go on vacation together kind of friends. They were as close as you can imagine without being biological family. And Judas betrays Jesus and all of them. And once he's gone, Jesus begins his farewell instructions to his disciples. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows. Jesus knows. He knows they're going to face the ugliest, most violent, emotionally taxing and grotesque display of human wickedness and suffering that any of them have ever imagined. And he opens with, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. The scriptures aren't sheepish about human suffering. The Bible's not awkward or red-faced or embarrassed about the fact that suffering is everywhere in this world. Since the garden, and that is since the beginning, the world has been full of sin and folly and suffering, and you and me have been full of sin and folly and suffering. The scriptures don't dodge this, and more, the scriptures actually explain this issue of suffering and pain in ways that we're not really very comfortable with, in ways that we naturally don't much like. Because the scriptures say things like Ecclesiastes 7.14, which reads, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. And then Isaiah 45, 7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. <coughs> and those are just cases of general adversity. 
general calamity. But the New Testament's also clear that especially for Christians, we'll face severe heartbreak and misery and affliction. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Our lives bear witness to the fact that the struggles and pains and difficulties of this life, be they mental or emotional or physical or spiritual, are here as a part of this world to stay. We can't avoid the battles in our lives. We can't hide from the difficulties of this life. There's no escape hatch from the painful and uncomfortable circumstances of this life. The kind of circumstances that incite fear and anxiety and distress. No one's immune. No one's immune from the trials of life. And we've learned from the past year in Isaiah that God's arm isn't short. It's said in Isaiah multiple times. And what that means is we do not suffer because God's too weak or unable to do anything about it. There are a few different examples from the Bible for why suffering is a part of our lives, but rest assured, it, it, it is not because God is too weak or unaware or unable to help. It is not because he's not good and loving and powerful. Some of those reasons are that we suffer so that we can become more aware of our weakness and more dependent on God's strength. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 tells us. We suffer because God's a loving father and all loving fathers discipline their kids and all discipline hurts. Hebrews 12 tells us. We suffer in order to test the purity of our character and strengthen it. Romans 5, 3 through 5 tells us. The pain and suffering of a Christian's life is not for nothing and these men are about to walk through a fire. The men in our text today are about to walk through a storm of stress and fear and failure and unmet expectations, the likes of which we can't imagine. They begin here at Jesus' betrayal, and they don't really ever stop for the rest of their lives. And Jesus' words, his instructions to them are to not let their hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Jesus. Don't allow your heart don't allow your heart to be sidelined by the anxiety and fear and pain of what's happening. Don't let that happen, Jesus says. Really scary, terrifying circumstances are on the way. Don't let them take over your heart. In the Christian life, there's just, there's no escaping trouble. But Jesus' command reveals that we get to participate. We have a role. We have instructions if Jesus is telling his disciples what to do, if he's giving them instructions, does he expect them to be able to do it? Does the command of Jesus right here reveal that we have a say in how the moments of our lives affect us? I believe it does. I believe that we have an option for how we engage and how we participate in the plan that God has for our lives, even when it comes to insurmountable suffering. I believe the f that this fact should reorient how we experience adversity, how we experience challenges in our lives. The grace and the power that we need to walk in adversity comes from the Spirit of Christ. Think about all the verses in the Bible 
Think about all the verses in just the New Testament that instruct us to do things that are incredible, that instruct us to do things that feel impossible, right? Verses like, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. How many wish we could have a do-over on that one over the last couple of years, right? But don't be surprised. Verses like, how on earth Verses, verses like rejoice, right? Rejoice in your suffering. How is that even possible? How is that even possible? Jesus gives us instruction because he knows what we will face will be outside of our own strength, outside of our own power, and left to ourselves will crumple, will be defeated. But he goes to the grave, he goes to the cross, the grave, and the resurrection to give us the Spirit of God in such a way that we can have a, a choice, we can have a decision, we can have a, a posture of obedient submission to what he asks, what he instructs, what he tells us to do right here. There's at least two things that we have to understand if we're going to face trouble and try to obey Jesus. Trouble in your life isn't an accident and we're not helpless bystanders, right? Calamity, hardship, testing, stress, you name it, is not, is not God rolling the dice and giving you a random set of miseries. God does not dispatch adversity arbitrarily. You may have no control about what happens on the outside, but what he chooses and, and what he chooses to give you to walk through in this life. But you do have a say on how you participate in his power, in the grace of God. You may not get a say on what or how or when the different suffering comes, but you do have a say in how you participate. And Jesus gives us some instructions Right? He says, don't let your hearts be troubled because with the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can make some choices. We're told to do these kinds of things all the time in the New Testament. Things that are obviously outside of our power. Things that are here so that we lean on Jesus and not on our own strength. For example, the word says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Consider, think, believe, take responsibility for your thinking, for your mind, for your thoughts. Don't think that way, think this way. That is, live with a certain understanding about sin and about the relationship that you have with your own brain. We're instructed to put off our old self that's corrupted through sinful and deceitful desires and put on a new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And here in Ephesians 4, it says this happens by being renewed in the spirit of our minds. Later in Ephesians, Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You're not helpless. 
You're not a helpless bystander when instructions from the scriptures are given to you. You have a choice to make. Forgiveness necessitates a, a trespass. Do you get what I mean there? Forgiveness necessitates a trespass. You won't have the opportunity to forgive anyone if nobody ever sins against you. We have real choices about obedience to the Bible, and we're faced with them every single day. The challenges of our lives are not the luck of the draw, and we're never helpless as to how to respond. The entire Bible treats us like we have a choice in the matter. In the providence of God, all of us will face trials of all shapes and sizes. And if you're not familiar with the doctrine of the providence of God, let me summarize it for you like this from the Westminster Catechism of Faith. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy, your trials are not an accident and they're not random. I hope that that can be a source of comfort. That's what the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, the power of God in the circumstances of our lives is supposed to uh, stabilize us and give us comfort because the very same God that climbed up onto a cross to die is the same God that's in charge of everything. He isn't asleep and he isn't wringing his hands trying to decide what to do next. You don't have to be afraid that the world's spinning out of control. The universe exists under, under the guidance of God's all-powerful direction. That means that whenever you're, whatever you're facing isn't an accident and it isn't outside of your participation. God gives instructions and he expects us to respond accordingly. Jesus does this for his disciples in this verse, and he does it for us right now, no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're facing. I often recite a short quote from St. Augustine when I get in places in the scriptures where the instruction that I'm getting seems undoable, seems impossible. In Augustine's confessions, he, he, says, uh, he says this, dear God, commandest what thou wilt and grant what thou hast commandest. God, tell me to do whatever you want me to do. I believe you. I believe it's good for me. I believe obedience to you is good for me. It's the best thing for me. Tell me to do whatever you want me to do and, and give me the grace to do it. Give me the power, the grace to do it. The solution that Jesus expects us to implement is not what you might think. Jesus just tells them to believe the truth about God and the truth about Jesus. He doesn't say, don't let your hearts be troubled because it's going to turn out exactly like you expect. Jesus doesn't say that he's going to give his disciples or us lives of luxury or lives of ease. Jesus doesn't comfort them by promising them money or a satisfying career or self-actualization. 
He doesn't promise to answer all of their questions. He doesn't promise them easy happiness. He doesn't even promise to end the trouble. He just says, believe in God, believe in me, listen to what I'm saying to you. He doesn't even promise to end it. That's his strategy. His strategy for not letting trouble overcome our hearts is to believe, align, see the truth of Jesus and love it. Listen to him and obey him. Delight in it. That's his offensive strategy for not being overtaken by the troubles of this world like grief or stress or anguish. Because there's a crucial connection in human beings between what we're thinking, what we believe, and how we experience our experiences. There's a crucial connection to what we're believing and how we're inhabiting our internal dialogue, our internal world. For instance, if, if you believe you deserve something that somebody else has, how will you behave? How will you behave? How will you behave inside your heart if you see somebody else with everything that you believe you deserve? You'll be envious. You'll be bitter. You'll be resentful. What about if you believe everyone else's failure is something that you need to have an opinion about? You'll be meddlesome or nosy or a busybody. What if you believe that this life is supposed to be comfortable and supposed to be easy and supposed to be painless? Then you'll be angry at God, angry at other people, and irritated all the time with every single challenge that comes your way. In 2 Timothy 4.5, Paul commands Timothy, he says, hey, endure suffering. Endure suffering. So what do we believe our lives are supposed to be like? What do we believe our lives are supposed to be like? The sin of pride is a false and inflated belief about yourself. That's why the Bible says, don't think more highly about yourself than you ought to. It's prideful. It's sinful. It's sinful to think that way. And it'll color the temperature of your heart and take you over. Now, there is a kind of belief, right? There's a kind of belief in Jesus that isn't enough. There is a kind of belief in Jesus that's not enough. Our relationship to Jesus and our belief in him must be more than merely intellectual assent. And we know this because the devil can do that. We read in James 2 that even the demons believe that God is one and they shudder. So there must be a way that we believe in Jesus that's different than demons. All the ways that Jesus, all the ways that Jesus is trying to stabilize his followers in this text, he's going to walk through in the next three chapters. This is what we're going to continue to study throughout the next 10 weeks. Because later in John 14, we read, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So you have to believe that about Jesus and love that. We're going to read, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And further down, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. 
Then again, later in verse 23, it says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with him. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is going to be talking about as he talks about what it means to believe in him and believe in God. He's going to march through these next three chapters over and over and over again, talking about what it means to love him, to be in him, to be with him, to be in communion with the Trinity, to be in deep affection and um, obsession with the living God. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is going to walk us through throughout the next few chapters. And we're going to spend 10 weeks meditating on that, dwelling on that, Because our minds, our minds follow what we love. Our actions follow what we love, including the acts of our wills. It's amazing to me when you realize that the Bible always treats sins of our brain, right? Sins of our minds and sins of our attitudes within the realm of our will. The Bible always treats our attitude as within the realm of the obedience of our own will. The question is, will we choose to love and obey Jesus or will we choose to ignore him? Will we ignore this requirement, this instruction, this commandment, or will we choose to believe in God and believe also in Jesus? Because that's the door. That's the door that gets you into the pathway that can withstand the pressure and storms of a troubled life without caving in completely. Philippians 4 says, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Also in Philippians 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be seen and known by everyone. Let your reasonableness be obvious. Let everyone be able to tell from far away that you're reasonable. The Lord's at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will do what? It will guard your heart and it will guard your mind. Those are verses that set what you're thinking about, what you're mulling over in your head, what you're talking about, and whether or not you're thankful right up against the peace of God, right? Like one pastor pointed out, the peace of God is not fragile. It guards us. It guards our hearts and our minds. It isn't fragile or thin or weak. It guards us through gratitude and prayer and supplication, leaning all of our hope and obedience and faith in the direction of Jesus. It guards us by believing him and meditating on the word of God and soaking in them, letting them wash over you. It's a constant fight over and over and over again. What our hearts do is they drift towards trouble and fear and anxiety and pain and circumstances and we pull them back to center and cry out again to the living God for faith and hope. Our hearts drift towards being overtaken and we pull them back. The troubles in our lives pull and pull and pull constantly. They want your heart's attention. 
The sin of other people is being used right now by your enemy, the accuser, to get you to be anxious and focus on something, anything other than Jesus. It's a fight for peace. It's a fight for satisfaction in God. It's a fight for rest in his promises. It's a fight to experience communion with the living God. Paul once said, some are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. They proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but to be a pain to me. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I mean, how opposite is that from our culture right now? How opposite is that? We don't even believe that this is an option for us, but it is. And I think we need to examine. We have the opportunity to examine our hearts and where they're dedicated. What thing is our heart latched onto? We need an unwavering commitment to the word of God and the gospel of God if we're going to not let our hearts be troubled. The word and the gospel. In the constant kind of downpour over the last two years, we've been painfully reminded that more than anything, we need the word of God and we need to apply the gospel of God to all of life's situations I think our experience at this point testifies to us that we've entered a new kind of phase in the history of the church, a noticeable kind of shift from where we were in the past five or 10 years. The tumultuous past few years are proving to be less of a kind of one-time stationary obstacle and more of a new normal. The last few years are proving to be less of a bump in the road or a pothole on an otherwise smooth highway. And it's more like we've turned off the highway onto a gravel road with a constant cloud of dust kicking up all around us and constant kind of cracks and pops from the rocks hitting our car. The highway overpass signs are gone. The trusty GPS seems to be on the fritz. We need to brush up on the fundamentals. We need the orientation skills of a good compass. We need to know what direction we're going. And I want to hammer into our church that that comes through the Bible and the Bible alone. I want to close by naming just a focused application to how we orient our lives in light of what Jesus has said to us. First, the application that is stunningly stunningly necessary is that of a recommitment to the equipment that needs to be utilized in order to obey Jesus's words. The word, the word of God says something about everything. The Bible, the word of God says something about everything. The word of God addresses everything in our lives in principle, in principle, right? It's true that the Bible doesn't address every single specific issue that you're going to face in your life, but it does equip you with all the necessary things you need in order to make choices that honor God with every single decision in your life. Every single hurdle Every single obstacle, every single confusing challenge in your life, you are not left without understanding about what's going on. And you're not left without instructions for what to do about it. 
The word of God is our guide and that will never change. We must pick up the book and read it, meditate on it, memorize it. We must read it, write it, sing it, say it, pray it. Because if we become unhooked from the word of God, we're lost, lost as a people. And let me take a second to say, I don't think that this church or any other churches I'm friends with are in, are in any real danger of becoming formally unhooked from the scriptures, right? What I mean by that, I don't know of any, I don't know of our church or other churches that I'm close to that are in danger of rewriting their doctrinal statement and stop believing things like inerrancy of the scriptures and, and sufficiency of the scriptures. Those churches are out there. We're not in danger of changing those specific formal doctrinal statements, right? What I'm talking about is more of like a functional ignorance or a functional ignoring of applying the scriptures to every single nuance and detail and commitment in our lives. How do we deal with money? How do we live in our neighborhoods? How do we organize our homes? How do we think about the things that God has given us, our gifts, our calling? How do we think about the world around us and the things that God has called us to do? Do we turn to experts before we might look at the word of God? How do we, how do we discipline our kiddos? Do we look to experts before we look to the word of God? Do experts, this is the key, right? Do experts carry more weight and significance in how we organize ourselves and our lives than the scriptures do? Do they do a better job at convincing you of what to do? Or does the Bible carry the strongest and most substantial weight in your heart about when and how to discipline your children or give away your money or welcome the stranger into your home? How do you make decisions about technology? How do you make decisions about school? Or how do you decide how to relate to your own spouse? Does the word of God determine those things for you? Or do you look to other experts first? Other voices, other platforms? What are you convinced by? What are you motivated by? Are you convinced? Are you more convinced by new trends than the ancient book? Now, I think all the kinds of like experts and books out there are actually God's common grace to us. I actually think they're wonderful. I do want for myself and for all of us to read the word of God in such a way that it gets to sink down to the bottom and be the major, powerful, center organizing principle in our lives as opposed to the things we add on top of that. Experts, friends, advice. If we want our hearts to not be troubled, we need to proclaim and embody the gospel of God. The gospel is the answer to how to do relationships. Personality tests and breathing exercises are not the answer to all your relational difficulty. They're just not enough. They won't be enough. The weight of sin, the forgiveness of Christ, the entrance into the communion with the Trinity, the power of the Holy Spirit is what you need most. 
We need to believe and understand that we're sinners. We need to believe and understand that we need the grace of God. We need to believe and understand that we don't deserve any of the mercy and grace that washes over us day in and day out and day in and day out. We need to believe and understand that only through Christ can we relate to other people rightly and fully the way that we're created to. When we embrace, when we embrace our broken condition, we get all the grace and mercy that God has for us. We don't have to posture. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to prove anything. And we don't have to protect anything. Anything. We don't work for God, but we get to obey him. We get to do what he says is good for us. And, that's, and that is good news. We need to experience this good news over and over and over and over. We need to remember that God loves you. He loves you. That you are just as righteous in the eyes of God as Jesus Christ. You don't have to convince God of anything. You need to believe that and remember that so that you can be a humble person and a confident person. You need the humility of knowing that you don't deserve God's grace to help you be compassionate and forgiving with other people. And you need the confidence of knowing your right standing with God so that you're not ruined by what other people say about you. We need to know that and believe that. We need to feel that and live by that deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And we need to proclaim it louder and louder and louder. It's our joy to. Lastly, if your heart's, the last thing I want to do this morning is I just want to say, if your heart is troubled right here, right now, today, two things. First thing, we have prayer ministers in our church every single Sunday who would love the opportunity to minister to you with prayer. They're over here to my left during communion. They're underneath the stained glass window to my left. And every single Sunday they're there for giving prayer ministering to you, loving you well, helping you, encouraging you, strengthening you. If you find your heart troubled right now, let us or let your neighbor even pray for you. Pray for you to believe the truth today more deeply than you did yesterday. Let us help you fight your fight with you because the truth is, is that none of us can fight alone. None of us can fight alone. And then the second thing I want to say before I close is come to the table and take communion as an offensive battle against unbelief and against being um, overtaken by the troubles of this life. This sacrament reminds us of what Jesus says in John chapter 6 where he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. If you're a Christian this morning, we invite you to take communion, not as an empty rote uh, ritual, but as a proclamation and a declaration and an embodied reminder that your only hope 
your only sustenance, your only source of life to fight the fight of faith against a, a troubled heart that's taken away in the storms of circumstances is in eating Jesus' body and drinking his blood. It is in getting all your life and hope and energy and faith from Christ. At Redeemer, we open communion to anybody who believes that, anybody who puts all their hope and faith in Jesus. So in a minute, we're going to welcome you forward to take communion. If you're not a believer this morning, if you have other areas, if you have all these troubles in your life and you're like, hey, I know exactly what to do about that. Add more money to my bank account. I know exactly what to do about that. Just get, you know, a new spouse or buy a new house or get a new nanny. I don't know. Those will fail you. I invite you to, to uh, and I challenge you to, to, to ask Jesus to reveal himself to you, to question whether or not the coping strategies in your life, the things that make you okay, are working. The way we take communion here at Redeemer is we, we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cup is wine and the glassware is juice. There'll be stations down to my right, to my left. There'll be a single serve station that's also gluten free right here in the center. And then we also have a station up in, the up in the balcony. If you're trusting Jesus this morning for your salvation, come and eat. I'm gonna invite the musicians to come up and I'm gonna invite the servers also to come up as I pray. The rest of you, sit in your seats, consider. Um, ask God to give you faith to eat in joy and confidence and proclamation of what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Spirit of God, would you awaken new faith in our hearts? Spirit of God, would you convict the proud this morning? Would you comfort the lonely and the weary? Would you fill us with faith? Would you fill us with hope? Would you transform us a little bit more today than we were yesterday? Would you make us more like Jesus? Would you stabilize our souls through believing in God and believing in Jesus? Would we accept and experience and know your deep love for us? Would that change how we act? Would you give us the, the experience of your love that actually helps us to obey your commandments? Would we believe your word? Would we love it? Would we cherish it? Today, today, awaken new faith. We trust you. We lean on you. We're hopeless and lost without you. We ask you to come in Jesus' name. Amen. Come when you're ready.